0: This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. I am delighted this morning to not be preaching. Not really. I normally like preaching better than preaching, but I am delighted to not be preaching uh, in lieu of the fact that uh, one of our members, Melissa Reginelli, is bringing Scripture this morning and the Word on Palm Sunday. Let me tell you a little bit about Melissa. Uh, Melissa and Nick, number one, they have been uh, a part of our church for a couple of years, but they just got married six months ago. So you see veterans over here of the marital thing. Congratulate them. We haven't done that yet. But this is a precocious young woman, 25 years old, hails from Bloomington, Illinois. Uh, we had mutual friends, but I met her about four years ago, and then she began coming here again, like I said, two years ago. She, last year, she finished her Master's of Divinity at Vanderbilt, has one of the brightest theological minds for a 25-year-old I've ever met. Also, and I think this is the more important part, not only has a bright theological mind, but she has a very bright pastoral heart. When I met her a few years ago, I told someone very quickly, I said, I would love for her to be on staff at Grace Point someday. I remember they asked me, doing what? And I said, I don't know. But she's such a bright person. I would love to have her a part of the team. And uh, she's doing so many things here. She teaches a Tuesday night adult education class. Her husband, Nick, is finishing up his PhD. I suppose you're coming down the home stretch on your um, dissertation right now. Uh, A.J. Levine, the great Jesus scholar, Jewish Jesus scholar that uh, spoke for us a couple of years ago, Uh, is one of his advisors. It's an interesting deal. Nick is a Christian studying rabbinic Judaism, and his advisor is a Jew who is a Jesus scholar. So they've got quite a frickin' frack show over there. But Nick is a brilliant guy himself. He teaches a lot for me when I'm out. He's taught a few Wednesday nights recently, and some of you have gotten him. But anyway, this is a wonderful, wonderful young couple in our church, and I'm really thrilled. Open your ears and your hearts and your minds. This is a wonderful word on Palm Sunday. Would you welcome Melissa Reginelli-Shazer to our platform?
1: Good morning, can you all hear me okay? Thank you, Stan, for that introduction. Uh, Let's open today with prayer. Will you all pray with me? God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for Holy Week. God, we ask that today, as all of us are gathered together, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would be present with us in our minds and our hearts and in our bodies, Lord. Give us messages about our belovedness and help us to grasp these concepts in a new and enlightening way today, Lord. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday, everyone. We're leading into Easter, we're going into Holy Week, and we've been in this Lenten season for 33 days now. As I was preparing this sermon, I've had quite a bit of time to prepare it, so I started thinking back on memories and images and themes that I have in my mind of Palm Sunday. So I grew up Episcopalian, a very liturgical church. Did anyone else grow up Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian? Uh, Yeah, very strong liturgical churches that have sacramental moments throughout the Holy Week and throughout the Lenten season to demarcate the meaning of those days for us. I was able to talk also with um, some people who had less liturgically based uh, churches and backgrounds, and as they were growing up, they said that really uh, Palm Sunday was more tied in with Easter. They even called it Warm-Up Sunday— (laughs) <laughs> Palm Sunday as warm up Sunday to Easter so they would have a passion play perhaps and during the passion play on Easter Sunday someone's uncle or dad would figure out a way to process down into Jerusalem and that sliver of the passion play was there triumphal entry, their Palm Sunday. For us, as we were growing up, I remember these really bright, sunny, beautiful Palm Sundays. And they would give us these palms that were really long. And I remember kind of peeling mine apart during the service. (laughs) And uh, eventually they would teach us to fold it into the shape of a cross. I remember standing outside and we waved the crosses. There was a sort of procession, and my brother started jabbing me with that. Um, And uh, throughout all of these these memories and these images, I don't think that I ever really rooted myself in the meaning of Palm Sunday. I never really understood the theological purpose of it, never fully understood why Jesus was going into Jerusalem that day, um, how that was foretold. And really what the significance was for it. So today that's what I want to do. I want us to look at what, why was Jesus going into Jerusalem on this particular fateful day. And look at what it means for us to live in a similar way. So in order to do this, I think that we need to drop back actually pretty far in Jesus' life to Luke 1. Uh, So Jesus actually isn't even on the scene yet. This is really only Mary, and thus far we've had a prediction of Jesus' birth, and that's really it. So Jesus is being formed in Mary's womb, and we get the first image and vision of God that will come in the form of Jesus. So verses 26 through 29 of Luke 1, uh, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. So she was greatly troubled and she tried to discern. Those are the two big points that I think we have going on in this text that show us what God is really doing here. She was greatly troubled. Having an angel show up to her. So my husband and I were talking about this particular verse, and as we were talking, uh, we realized that over and over and over again in the scriptures, we have angels showing up to people and them kind of freaking out in that moment. Usually the angel has to greet them by saying, like, calm down, peace be with you, fear not. And ultimately, yeah, calm down. So Mary was greatly troubled. And as Nick was talking about the images that are associated in his mind with this particular moment, he said it reminds him of when uh, a young Drew Barrymore first meets (laughs) E.T., She goes running into her brother's bedroom and E.T. is standing there and she is standing there and screams, Aah! and E.T. goes Mah! back at her. <laughs> and this just reminds us of what really we have going on, an individual encountering a creature that they have never seen before, and she is rightly troubled. The other thing that she does is that she discerns She discerns in her heart the greeting. And what was the greeting? Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. So at that Episcopal church that I told you about, the first thing that would happen every Sunday is that the priest would stand behind the pulpit and they would say, the Lord be with you. And then, yeah, the congregation responds, beautiful, beautiful. Isn't that so good? It's this mutual blessing that God is with you and God is with me, and we're somehow in this together, working it out together. Um, So she is discerning this in her mind. The Lord is with you. But it strikes me that the Lord being with her isn't just in her spirit, Mary is pregnant. Mary is pregnant, and the angel goes on to tell her that he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a big vision that she receives. Not only is God with her in her spirit, but God is with her in her very womb, and the kingdom that that God is bringing about through her will have a kingdom that has no end. This is a big vision that we have of a God who is intimately with us. The next narrative that I think we see very clearly showing why Jesus ultimately goes into the triumphal entry is his baptismal narrative. So in Luke 3, there are are baptismal narratives in all four Gospels. Luke's is pretty short, actually, but it shows so clearly what belovedness means. So in verse 21... It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized, it's like a little footnote there, uh, and he was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. I don't know how many of you have read uh, the book Life of the Beloved by Henry Nowen. Has anyone read that? I highly encourage it. It teaches about how we can live out belovedness in the same way that Jesus demonstrates in his baptismal narrative. With you, I am well pleased. It doesn't say, in all of your works, I am well pleased. It doesn't say, because of all that you have done, I am well pleased. It says, with you, I am well pleased. The act of being with Jesus, in that act, God is well pleased. I think this is a really difficult concept for us to grasp, actually. We live in a society that is um, a give and receive society. And it makes so much sense. I'm not dogging on this. But we work, we do things, and then we receive compensation. We receive payment, accolades. We work, and then we receive. And I think that that is perfectly fine until that model pervades the way that we view ourselves. Our own wholeness our own being, and especially our relationship with God. And this isn't just a modern thing that has happened. This isn't like in the last 10 years, people have started working for their faith. Uh, uh, During the Tuesday night class here at Grace Point, uh, just a few months ago, we were talking about the Reformation. So we're in the 16th century, and we were talking about Martin Luther. One of the things that we learned about Martin Luther is that in... His very intimate story, before he started this reformation, he would sit in the church, nights on end, days on end, praying, confessing. He wouldn't leave. The leaders of the church actually told him to go home. But he wouldn't leave because he was terrified that the work that he had done would not suffice for him to have a whole, reconciled, beloved relationship with God. And don't we see that? So often now, we work and we strive and we toil and we do our best to try to earn our belovedness. We know ourselves most intimately. We know the weaknesses within ourselves most intimately and God knows those also. So we try to perfect them. We try to change them and therefore earn right relationship and belovedness with God. But I think that the moment that we're able to step back from that strife, that is the moment in which we can actually hear the whisper, hear that quiet voice that says, you are my beloved. Be still. Be calm. With you, I am well pleased. And I am always with you. And it is in that being with you, just as you are, that I am well pleased. Jesus carries this with him throughout his life. He goes on to preach, teach, call disciples, perform healings, answer questions, forgave a lot of people. He empowered women. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He sent out his followers. Uh, He foretold his own death three times. He laments for Jerusalem. He tells a lot of parables, uh, and he describes the coming of the kingdom of God. He does all of this not because it was in the doing, but because it was in him. It was a part of who he is. How do we know that? We know that because the people who dictated how others should behave in that society, they get really upset with him. And he still refuses to comply with their wishes. And this is really early on. In Luke 9... Ten chapters before the triumphal entry, Jesus tells his disciples twice that he is going to be delivered into the hands of the political leaders, that he will endure suffering and rejection, and ultimately that he will die, but that he will be raised again. Jesus' identity is not in his doing, it's in his being. It's in his knowledge that he's so beloved by God that he can endure that suffering, that persecution, that death by Roman officials and scorn by society, and ultimately God will still resurrect him, that God loves him enough to never leave him nor forsake him, and therefore Jesus could follow through on his call to being in the world. This all leads up to Palm Sunday, to this triumphal entry story. Every gospel provides an account of the triumphal entry. I chose to go with Luke's because I love his theology. It is um, a small side note. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them actually include palms. That's only in John. We're going to forego that. That's okay. We're going to stick with Luke's because Luke's theology is so good. Um, So let's go there right now. This is Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. This is what we have. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples and he said, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it, and it worked. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, and the crowd said to him, teacher, rabbi, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. So in this text, we have Jesus sitting on a colt, and he has the multitude of his disciples that he has gathered throughout his ministry crying out, praising him. And the Pharisees say, Stop that. Tell them to be quiet. Not only was it perhaps bothersome or annoying, but it could even maybe hint at uh, insurrection to be calling him the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're saying this isn't okay. And Jesus, rather than uh, being okay with what they're saying, rather than complying, he tells them, if these beloved ones of mine were silent, even the stones would cry out the stones would cry out. This is a really uh, weird phrase to read, actually. Let's be honest. Uh, I haven't ever seen any stones cry out. We're around them all the time. I've never seen that happen before. (laughs) Jesus was doing something really, really big here, though, and we need to go to other places in the text to figure out what that really was. So uh, in Romans 8, 22 to 23, the text says we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are together with creation in this groaning for the revealing of God. I was talking with Van from our Tuesday class last week. And he said that the image of the rocks crying out evokes for him this idea that there is somehow life being in and among all things. That we're united together with creation and that creation is somehow spiritually active as well. And in the building up of this moment of Jesus entering Jerusalem, Jesus points to the image of us united with creation, crying out for the one who shows us that belovedness. As I'm reading the text, though, I think the biggest point that struck me was how little Jesus actually does in the text— Really, as we're reading it, uh, he tells his disciples to go into the village. So they go into the village. He says, untie a colt, so they untie the colt. He even tells them, you know, when people ask you, say this, and they say it, and it works. They bring it to him, and in the midst of him just basically kind of bossing his disciples around, he he is met with the colt. The disciples go so far as to throw their own cloaks onto the colt and hoist Jesus up onto the colt. (laughs) Jesus couldn't even pop himself right up. Jesus does so little in this text. It, It really is kind of striking, especially given that throughout the gospel, he's been doing so much. So much has been coming toward this moment. So as we were discussing kind of Jesus's inactivity in in this text. uh, In the Tuesday class, Stephen Register pointed out that it's almost as though the disciples had to authenticate Jesus's experience. They were the ones who had to enact it. It was a participatory move. Jesus, at this point, could not be the only one To enact his move into Jerusalem, he needed the support of his disciples. Another way that it was phrased by Jeremy in our class, he said that it's as though Jesus has been doing so much and it's time for him to receive. It's a model of servanthood that the disciples step up and they're willing to serve Jesus in this very moment. I think this is a really strange image, actually. Um, when I was growing up, and I know I'm not alone in this, when I was growing up, I kind of envisioned the scene almost like like a beauty pageant, <laughs> maybe even uh, like a Super Bowl parade. So uh, we have like the beauty queen or the Super Bowl uh, winning team, football team in the middle, and then there's the crowd around them, and they are the ones cheering and applauding and celebrating, and they're working the crowd. And (laughs) I think it's easy to apply that sort of image to the triumphal entry. And during that time, the people in the middle, the football team, the beauty, the beauty queen, they're standing in the middle, and they're waving, and they're cheering, and they're evoking the praise of the crowd. So, the way I'm, I know I'm not alone, I Google imaged uh, triumphal entry. <laughs> I was just curious, what do people think about this? And I found two common themes throughout all of the images. Either Jesus was sitting on the colt and he was doing kind of the beauty pageant wave (laughs) with his disciples around him, or this one was a little bit more odd to me. He was sitting on the colt and doing this like bask in the light (laughs) sort of pose, like he's soaking it all in. So uh, I don't think that this is actually what was going on. And that's for two reasons. Uh, The first came through, actually, Jake DeBoer. He and his wife have been to Jerusalem quite a few times. So as he was talking in our Tuesday class about his uh, imagining of this text, he said he can't separate it from his memories of actually being in Jerusalem. He said the walk from the Mount of Olives is scorching hot. Like, scorching hot. He said he can't even imagine how Jesus was able to stay on the donkey And we know that in John, the reason they're waving palms is not just for fun. They're trying to cool Jesus down. That's why they have the palms. So that is one distinctive difference between, say, a beauty pageant and the triumphal entry. The other biggest difference I see is that at a Super Bowl parade, the team needs the crowd to show up. They need the whole city or all of their fans to show up to celebrate them. If not, it's just a bunch of, like, really big guys standing in a circle, being themselves. Um, So they need people to show up and to scream and to praise them and to clap and cheer. I don't think that actually Jesus needed those people to show up. There's a difference here. I think that in reality the disciples who crowded the road, they needed themselves to show up. They had been a part of what Jesus had been doing for so long that as Jeff in our Tuesday class put it, they needed to take responsibility for what Jesus was enacting in this moment. They had to show up. It was in them. They felt drawn and compelled toward Jesus After the life that he had lived and the belovedness that he had shown to the world. I have to, though, put that in contrast with the knowledge that this is the same man who only one chapter before was predicting his own death. So as Jesus is sitting on this colt, I think that he knew that they would betray him. It was only five days later that they did. But I think that in that moment, he knew that they loved him. He didn't turn them away. I don't think he encouraged them to scream louder. He didn't wave or pose from what we can tell. I also really don't think that he indulged them. From the beginning, Jesus didn't need it. This is the man who heard, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus had the praise, the acceptance, the belonging, the competence, the goodness and the love that he needed to be who he was and who he is from the beginning. He didn't need the press, but by being who he was, the press came to him and he didn't indulge them he didn't waver in who he was he simply rode forward i think that's hard for most of us i spoke earlier about how our society really demands perfection demands performance and that's mostly for a good reason But the moment that our being, our value, our worth gets tied up in the feelings and opinions and desires of others, we no longer remain connected to that inner being, that inner being that says, you are my beloved. This reminded me of a time that I was in divinity school. So I applied to do chaplaincy during my first year of divinity school, and I got placed at a children's hospital. I had no clue what I was getting myself into, and on the first week as I walked in there, I had all of the stresses, anxieties, concerns that uh, really anyone has going into a new job, but also knowing that it would be a bit more sensitive of a job. I was feeling all of those concerns, wondering really if I would be able to make it throughout the course of that unit. After the first week, after seeing the amount of trauma and illness and sadness and suffering, That was happening, there was no longer a sense that I was choosing to do something, so much as it was coming out of my being. I think all of us have these moments when something happens to our being, often in the face of suffering, when we are called to live in a different way, for us to remain us, for me to remain me. I have to do something. And I think that this is what Jesus shows us over and over and over again. Jesus has a very clear sense of direction for where he's going throughout the Gospels. The disciples often are just like bumbling around trying to figure out what's going on. Jesus knows where he's going. There is a trajectory for him. The most illustrative or one of my favorite texts that shows this is the transfiguration story in Luke. So if we could pull that up, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, the text says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. They went up onto the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance uh, appearance of Jesus' face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him, and the men were parting from him. So Peter said to Jesus, "'Master, it is good that we are here. "'Let us make three tents, "'one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah,' "'not really knowing what he said. "'As he was saying these things, "'a cloud came and overshadowed them, "'and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. "'And a voice came out of the cloud, "'saying, this is my son, my beloved, listen to him. "'And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone.' And they kept silent, and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is my son, my beloved. Jesus, in this text, clearly knows what he is doing when he goes up to that mountain. That was not a simple decision for him to make. He didn't just decide to take a stroll up the mountain. He knew where he was going. The disciples didn't. They didn't know from the beginning. They didn't know once they were up there. But Jesus, out of his being, had a sense of direction about where to go. And I mean, the disciples, while they're up there, they're seeing Moses and Elijah. And Peter's first thought is to like set up tents so that they can go camping. He did not get it at all. (laughs) He did not get what was going on. It's the difference between doing and being. This was coming out. Of Jesus's being. I uh, chose the transfiguration story on purpose because it leads us into why Jesus ultimately ended up uh, at the uh, triumphal entry. So the transfiguration is in chapter nine. Ten chapters later, we have the triumphal entry. So the text says in verse 30 of chapter nine, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This was so foretold. Even before the transfiguration, Jesus is predicting his own death. He predicts it twice before the transfiguration even happens. The gospel writers know what they're doing. They're giving us hints. They're demarcating those moments so that we will be clued in to the fact that Jesus knew long before he ended up in Jerusalem what would happen. And so the story goes on. He ends up on the road from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem on this fateful day, living out his deeply held belovedness. He had to go to Jerusalem. He knew all that would happen. He voiced it on numerous occasions, and yet he still chose to go because the risk of him suffering and losing his life could never touch or tarnish the knowledge of his belovedness. Psalm twenty seven, one through four encompasses this sense of calling in the in the face of suffering and death really beautifully. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Who would Jesus fear? Over and over again throughout his life, we see him being reminded of his belovedness and then he demonstrates it. He shows us his belovedness and a part of that belovedness is his knowledge that he is safe. He is safe in the everlasting presence and love of God. And this is hard for us. This is a hard thing not only for us to grasp, but for us to remember, for us to hold. One of my favorite positive psychologists, Sean Acker, he's a professor at Harvard, he talks about the inability of us to feel the sense of satisfaction, to feel the sense of, of contentness and even happiness, so he says that in a world that focuses on stress, fear, competition, anxiety, uh, we begin to believe that our external factors, our doings, those are the source of our happiness. So our jobs, grades promotions families marriages children appearance popularity notoriety etc cetera, etc cetera. those are the things that are supposed to determine our happiness he says it doesn't actually work that way those external factors determine 10% of our happiness the other 90% is up to us It depends on us. It depends on how we view ourselves in the midst of a competitive and highly anxious world. He says that the doings of our lives can never really change our beings. I was in the Dominican Republic for a few months, a few years ago, and one of the things that just spoke so much so clearly is that the 10%, while that was strongly lacking, they often had the 90% way more under control than we did. The joy, the sense of contentment, belonging, purpose, placement in the world. It spread. It spread. That joy spread to us in a way that we rarely feel because in the midst of competing and striving for the 10%, it is so easy for us to lose sight of the 90 It is so easy for us to lose sight of it. The work and the toil and the strife that we endure ultimately will not open up the clouds and produce a voice that says, you are the beloved. It never will. Our promotions and raises and titles and offices will not whisper that promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have to get beyond it. If we are ever to embrace the belovedness that God communicates throughout the scriptures and specifically through Jesus, his son, we cannot stay trapped in the doing. We will get burned out. Chris Hauser from our Tuesday night class. Where are you? You're in here. There we go. Um, Chris Hauser from our Tuesday class sent me a message about the encounter weekend led by a guy named Derek Watson. Has anyone participated in the encounter weekend in here? Yeah, so on the third day of the encounter weekend, they produce uh, this model of be, do, have versus do, have, be. That can be a bit of a mouthful, so I think we have some slides to uh, give us a visual. So the do, have, be model would look something maybe like this. You reach your sales quota, yes, you reach your sales quota so that you can make more money, which is a have, so you can have more money so that you can be accepted, loved, secure, safe, et cetera, et cetera. The do then produces a have, which then fulfills us in our being. That happiness never really lasts though. What happens once you reach your sales quota you get another one. That's what always happens. Once you reach your sales quota, once you do the most that you need to do, you are always given another one. So our brains are constantly on this spinning cycle that is telling us that we have a goal and once we reach that goal, we'll be able to celebrate. We don't actually celebrate. We get a fleeting moment of contentment before we have another goal to reach. So our minds go back to that anxiety, insecurity, fear, concern, strife and toil that we've been discussing. The be, do, have model, on the other hand, gives us a different framework to understand what Jesus was doing throughout his life and into his resurrection. So the encounter works Philippians 2, 1 through 7 really beautifully to illustrate this be, do, have model. Um, But I decided to be a little bit creative, so I looked one verse later. And Philippians 2, 8 through 11 does the same thing. So let's look at this text. Jesus is being found in human form. He starts with the be and then he humbles himself. He does the humbling to the point of death, even death on a cross. And finally, God exalts him so that he could have the name above all names, the honor that simply in Jesus' name, every knee will bow in heaven on earth in creation under the earth, be, do, have, Jesus knew it. Deep in his being, he knew it. While all his disciples gathered around the road shouting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, Jesus knew it. And not only did Jesus know his belovedness, his call to be while he sat on that colt during the triumphal entry, But he knew it in his suffering, and he knew it in his death, and he knew it in his resurrection. At the Mount of Olives in Luke 22, as Jesus is praying, the text says, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This cup, this burden, this gift, this purpose... Out of Jesus' belovedness comes a call to do what he has known he would do all along, and he asks God to remove it. We see Jesus question the cost of his belovedness in a tender, humble, and terrified way. And how does God respond? An angel for strengthening. Strengthening. God does not eradicate belovedness in the midst of questioning, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of skepticism and concern and fear. God does not eradicate belovedness. Rather, God sends a comforter, a strengthener, to remind Jesus of the enduring power of his belovedness and the fleeting power of death. Even in Jesus' trial, as he stood before the council, they ask him if he is the Son of God. And he kind of rhetorically dances around them for a little while, as he does. And then eventually he says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, Jesus is claiming his belovedness in the face of death before death ever strikes him. And when it does, as he is hanging on the cross between two other men and the sun is setting and Jesus reaches his final moment in his first life, he cries out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The spirit that was always claimed by God, that was God, returned home to the one who called it beloved and Jesus, throughout the whole process, endures continually as the beloved Son of God. The triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, this is the inaugural moment. Every moment of Jesus' being, even his conception, has been marked by his belovedness. Mary, God is with you. You are my beloved Son, With you, I am well pleased. This is my beloved. Listen to him. These moments define Jesus' beingness throughout his life, and it is only through that being that any of his doings found meaning. He had to first be the beloved child of God. I want to move into a time of contemplation. During this time, I want us to think about what it means for us to be beloved children of God, for us to live in the way that Christ lived, and for us to find, at the end of it all, what it is that calls us beloved in our very being. I'll start with a poem, and then we'll have a time of guided contemplation. Go ahead and get comfortable. This poem is called Love After Love, and it's by Derek Walcott. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. And here we are, claiming our belovedness. The challenge is to remember, you are my beloved, who then shall you fear? I will never leave you nor forsake you. I knit you together in your mother's womb, and yes, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. I know the number of hairs on your head, and I can strengthen you when your sweat turns to blood. Who then shall you fear? As we march ahead into the final week of this Lenten season, may we begin to remember our belovedness, May we see with clear eyes and softened hearts the love that God has for us. In the heated, stressful moments of doing, may we feel the presence of the one who claimed us even in our mother's womb. On Friday, may we remember that belovedness does not eradicate suffering— but gives us the knowledge that God is present with us in the suffering and the hope that God will see it through. And a week from today, may we come back into the church on Easter Sunday with full confidence of conviction that the love of God within us empowers us to stare even into the very face of death with the peace and the knowledge that death will never win.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Melissa. What a wonderful word to head into Holy Week with. Please, please carry this word with you. I couldn't help but think when we were coming back from Haiti and I asked my son a few months ago, what was it that struck you most about those Christians there? And in the middle of the deprivation, the pain, the sorrow, abject suffering, he reflected. We were sitting there in the plane, and he said, I think the thing that was most shocking was all of the laughter. I didn't expect the laughter. In any setting, people can drive down into the being of life. What a wonderful, wonderful word. I will not look at Jesus the same coming into Jerusalem Next Sunday, Easter, bring friends, bring family. Let's come together and let's celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Two services, 9 and 1045. You know that, so we're going to have a wonderful, wonderful time next week.